The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. chapter 6. Let us give attention to the word of God. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. At Advent, we are always reminded of the amazing condescension, the incredible love of God revealed in the incarnation, the coming of Jesus in the flesh, born to the Virgin Mary. In the words of 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Maybe that that quote, in some of your translations, that part of 1 Timothy 3.16, that poetic part is written as poetry in the English text. It could be an early hymn to the incarnate Christ. And truly the truth of the Son of God becoming man to save us from our sins is wonderful and filled with comfort and consolation for every believer. But this evening we look at one aspect 
of Christ's mighty humbling of himself. And this one vignette, we might say, is this account of his rejection at Nazareth in his hometown, and then the sending out of the twelve shortly after that. What do we learn from our account before us this evening? Our first point is this. Jesus' rejection by his hometown reminds us of how deeply the Savior stooped to save us. His rejection at Nazareth reminds us how deeply the Savior stooped to love us. As we read the gospel of accounts and we read about Jesus' life and his death, and there are so many things that should touch us about the way Jesus loved us, what he suffered from the cradle to the cross to pay for our sins, to live a perfect sinless life, to minister on this sin-cursed world, to go and set his faith, to go to the cross, to die for us. The degree of Christ's willingness to humble himself. Our account in Mark 6 picks up after his time in Capernaum, and that's the reference to in verse 1. He went away from there, that's understood, Capernaum, which was about 20 miles north of Nazareth, and he apparently was on a strategically planned teaching and preaching tour. We don't understand that he's just haphazardly kind of wandering around, but certainly there was order and strategy to his method of going through the hill country of Galilee, teaching, preaching, and performing miracles. And so he's come 20 miles south to his hometown, and at this point now there are disciples following him these 12 that he's called to himself, and he's going to shortly send out, we read in our text. So this account in Mark, we most scholars take to be a separate occasion, a later occasion than the rejection at his hometown recorded in Luke chapter 4, when he's taken to the brow of the hill and almost killed, but he passes through the midst of them. And this time he has his disciples along with him. It's apparently later than that initial one. So evidently he would travel regularly through these towns. Part of his purpose was to continue going from town to town. And he would not simply stay in one, t- in one place the whole time, as we know. And as it was custom on the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue. And whether he's invited to, we assume he's invited to teach at this time. And we see the reaction In verses 2 and 3, they heard him, and they were astonished. It's probably like we feel when we hear a sermon that's just so good and just goes to our souls. But the problem is, even though his hometown crowd recognized that that sermon was powerful and clarity must have come to them about what the Word of God means and how it applied, yet in their hearts they were still rejecting it. Even though there was a degree of light, there was resistance. It's like we're going to find that King Herod loved to hear John the Baptist preach. That didn't stop him from arresting him and later beheading him. And you just see this dissonance, this, we might say, cognitive dissonance between recognizing and being astonished at preaching with power. And, of course, they've heard the, the miracles going on in the towns around them, but their response In verse 2, where did this man get these things? 
not a response of faith, but a response of questioning and a, apparently a, a degree of resentment. What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? You can just hear the resentment and the lack of respect. The son of Mary. And by the way, it was not tradition to refer to a man as the son of his mother, even after his father had died. I was thinking, we don't really call people son of so-and-so, but my father is deceased now, and if the people in my hometown would say, oh, yes, that's John Light, son of John Light, that's, that's apparently how the tradition would be in, in Nazareth at that time. They wouldn't say son of Mary unless you wanted to insult someone. And probably that's what the intention here, and probably even back to the rumor mill from 30 years beforehand, we're not sure about his birth. It's, there were uh, probably hearsay, uh, chatter, and gossip going through the community when Jesus was born about whether he was a legitimate son of Joseph or not. Is this not the carpenters, the son of Mary and brother of, of James and Joseph and Judah, Simon, sisters with us, and they took offense at him? Their initial sense of astonishment was overcome by questioning and resentment, and they couldn't get beyond his ordinariness in their minds. They would have judged that there was nothing extraordinary about Jesus. We know him. He's just like the rest of us. There's nothing special. He's lived here for 30 years. We know he wasn't born there. He was born in Bethlehem, but Nazareth is where he was raised. And so this derogatory statement, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Notice that these questions and these objections reveal that the people of the town only knew Jesus in a superficial way. They did not recognize him as anyone, as any, in any way as one anointed by God, which he was at that time. He had been anointed by God. He was the Christ. And Jesus compares his reception here in verse 4 to the experience of the prophets. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And then there's this interesting statement that he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. This statement about his not doing miracles was in no way indicative of Jesus' inability or lack of power to perform miracles, but a statement saying that it was not the appropriate circumstances for miracles which were typically linked to a response of faith. The performance of miracles, as one writer says, in the absence of faith could have resulted only in the aggravation of human guilt and the hardening of men's hearts against God. So it was not that he couldn't perform the miracles, but that it was not morally right for him to do so. Jesus rejected by his hometown. I remember back when I was 24 and I was, uh, we were spending 
a summer. Patty and I had been married for two years, and I had taught school for two years in Texas. And we had come back, and we had dropped our furniture off at seminary in Illinois. And I came back to Carlisle because I had a summer job working as a gardener at a local estate of a very wealthy family outside of Carlisle. And, you know, I'd ride my bike every day and work in the gardens and take care of this wonderful place. And, uh, but we, we were attending my home church at the time where my parents still were. And I remember that I was asked to preach. I was a budding, sem- I was going to go to s- seminary that fall. So, okay, that was pretty rare for our church in those days. I don't, I can't remember any other young men before me. And uh, so I was asked to preach. And I remember my reception because the, the very wealthy man that I was working at his house, he was from the Methodist church, but he came to the Presbyterian church that day to hear me preach and to, you know, out of respect and just wondering, what's with this? You know, uh, you're going to seminary. I think there was a genuine interest there. And uh, I just remember the sense of just, you know, you want to do well. And I stuttered a lot in those days. So there was that issue, too. So I barely got through my 15-minute sermon. I think I still have it in a file somewhere in my cabinet. And I think it was on Philippians 3 about the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And I just remember, you know, getting the hometown pats and good job, John, and go, to, go for it in seminary and everything. But it certainly didn't have much effect. You know, it didn't have much punch to it. It didn't have, uh, I'm sure that hardly anyone, even if they didn't know Christ, probably was that offended because this is just this young man who's, you know, trying. Uh, Quite a different reaction, I'm sure, than the incarnate Son of God think to be there hearing him preach. And Isaiah had prophesied that he would be despised and rejected. And this rejection in his hometown really is just anticipating the wider, deeper, fuller rejection that will come as the nation rejects him, and he goes to the cross to carry our sins. It had to be this way. Not that everyone always rejected him. We know that there were those who responded in faith, but by and large, this non-reception was just a small part of the suffering of our Messiah. And as you think this December about Christmas and you buy Christmas gifts for your family and friends and you go about your work and you see the decorations come up, stop and think about the Savior and what his incarnation cost him. This is just a small piece of it. We know there's much, much more. And we know there's much, much more that we do not even know The Bible tells us some of these things, but we do not know the depth of it all. Are you able to rejoice and glory in this great gospel that, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the Lord Jesus Christ became poor so that we might become rich in him, not rich in terms of this world's wealth, but rich spiritually, rich with the gift of salvation. Jesus Christ became poor to give us eternal life. We ought to be reminded as we read about this rejection of the great humiliation, the great humility of our Lord. Secondly, what do we learn from our text? Jesus' rejection by his hometown reveals the deep problem of unbelief. We've mentioned this, but we see 
that there are two particular expressions that teach us this lesson about the problem of unbelief and how serious it is. It's in verse 5 when we're told, and he could do no mighty work there. And then in verse 6, I didn't emphasize that, it says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. This is the only time in the book of Mark that Jesus marveled at anything. We know that there are other accounts that Jesus marveled, and there's the account of the centurion elsewhere. Mark doesn't use this word here that he uses here when Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. And so, really, in a sense, we're seeing that as we compare the gospel accounts, Jesus marvels at times at extremes of uh, exceptional faith, or here, in this case, exceptional unbelief, that those who were closest to him, those who had the greatest proximity to the blessings of the incarnate Christ, they rejected him, and he marvels. It's like the Lord, the incarnate Son of God, cannot almost comprehend this. And we see that unbelief has a power to rob people of the highest blessings. Here he could do no miracles among them. And we see something of the unreasonableness of sin, the irrationality of sin, that even the Son of God regards it with surprise. Someone has written that unbelief makes a person refuse the clearest testimony and instead believe the lies of this world. Unbelief is this insidious problem in all of our hearts by nature that we do not grasp and embrace the truth of God. And here was Jesus who had lived among them for so many years, whose brothers and sisters they knew, and had declared himself as a public teacher, essentially, in Israel, an anointed one by God. He had lived among them, and maybe it wasn't a particularly, you know, uh, spectacular life. I I don't think that we are to understand that as some of the uh, wrong biblical accounts that were written hundreds of years after the fact have Jesus turning, you know, a stone into a butterfly or something like that. But what they had been blessed with was Jesus living a blameless, sinless, perfect life among them for these 30 years. And yet, they couldn't believe that this one had any right to claim their submission, their faith, their commitment. It is a very common danger and we see it in our society. We see it at Christmas time to be so accustomed to the gospel that you don't even stop to think about it. Unbelief just resides in your heart, and you don't even believe what you're singing or hearing or maybe even confessing at church. We were given the Downton Abbey Christmas CD last year. Maybe some of you got that. It's a two-CD series with some of the stars of Downton Abbey singing things like, Oh, Holy Night. And I can't, whenever I put that CD in and I hear these actors and actresses, and you don't know where they are with the Lord, and you hear one of them, this, uh, one of the actors who, uh, one of the love interests of one of the 
daughters in that show, sings this beautiful rendition of Oh Holy Night. And as I think of him singing that when I'm in the car and I hear him, I just think, does he really believe that? He's just singing it with such intensity. And I think it reminds me of Jesus' hometown. They were so accustomed to him that it was a barrier to their believing the gospel and repenting and turning to the Lord. Let us watch our own hearts very carefully in the matter of unbelief. Because even when we have been born again by the Spirit of God, the real nature of unbelief is still a temptation for us. Let us guard against unbelief in its maybe lesser forms, but still there. Even Christians who have passed from death into life, there is still the regular temptation to slip into an unbelieving mindset and to fail to trust the Word of God, to fail to watch and pray, to be drawn into the unbelieving mindset of the world around us, that, that atmosphere that we breathe in every day almost. Jesus' rejection reminds us of the danger of unbelief. Well, thirdly and lastly, the rejection of Jesus teaches us that his disciples must expect rejection as well. Jesus' rejection teaches us that we as his disciples must expect rejection as well. And here we launch into the end of our text. We read verses 7 through 13 as well, which was about the sending out of the 12. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but here the 12 are sent out two by two. Clearly, they're representing Jesus Christ in word and power to teach and to preach and to cast out unclean spirits. And Jesus sends them forth in verse 8 with this command not to take really anything extra, just a staff and uh, just the clothes on their back, no bread. You know, when we go to the Baltimore airport and we get ready to go on a flight, we leave our house with a lunch pack so after we go through security, we can eat a quick lunch before we get on the plane because they don't serve lunch in the plane. We're always thinking about our next meal. We don't want to miss lunch. Uh, you know, we don't want to just eat peanuts all day on the plane. So there's, we're always ready for, we're taking bread and some meat and mayonnaise too. The disciples are told, don't take bread. Don't take a bag with anything in it. No money. And, and the Greek term used there is what we would call pocket change. You know, don't even take the pocket change out of your ashtray in your car that you keep there. Don't take any of that. Don't take two Tunics. Why would they take two? Probably because if they had to sleep outside, they'd need an extra kind of tunic or overcoat, something to keep out the night chill. None of that. This is serious. Now, Jesus does change this later on at the end of the Gospels when he's talking about their further ministry. This isn't permanent for all time for all Christian workers to do this, but he is demanding dependence on him. This requires rigorous faith that they're going out dependent, wholly dependent on the Lord and on those who would show hospitality. So when they get to a village, they're preaching the gospel, they're calling people to repent, they're declaring the kingdom has come in Jesus Christ, and we can see that there's this ominous warning in verse 10, that uh, 
We don't know how they're always going to be received. They're supposed to stay in the same house that they come to when they enter a town. Don't, don't go from house to house. If, <clears throat> if somebody offers them a nicer, more comfortable, maybe wealthier house, they're not supposed to take it. Just stay with the original house if that house is willing to have you there. But, verse 11, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This was a Jewish practice when pious individuals left a foreign country or town. There was this practice of shaking off the dust of their feet and clothing to represent that nothing of that pagan town would cling to them. And here, Jesus is telling them, to carry on this tradition, if a village or town rejects them, it is to be a symbolic declaration that this is a very serious thing that you do. In a sense, it's merciful because God is declaring to that town, consider what you are doing because you are coming under the judgment of God if you do not repent and receive the kingdom of God. And so... The disciples certainly were forewarned by Jesus Christ that they will be rejected. And we know that ultimately 11 of the 12 were put to death for their faith. That's how tradition has it, all except for the Apostle John who was exiled. The gospel is good news, but it is also hard news, isn't it? The gospel is hard news on human pride and self-sufficiency. The gospel is very hard news on self-centeredness and sinful self-seeking, which is the characteristic of our world, whether it's in destructive ways like drug overdoses or murdering someone or whether it's in socially acceptable ways. Sin is sin, and the gospel is a call to turn away from our ways of sin and turn to the Savior to give him our lives. The gospel is a call to repentance. The the disciples were to call people to repent, the declaration of the kingdom of God, and that Jesus Christ is the true king, and he has come, and he offers life in Christ. But he commands your life, and he calls for wholehearted commitment, wholehearted submission to the king of glory. And the problem, according to John 3.19, is this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It should not surprise any of us that if you seek to be a servant of God and to live for Jesus Christ in this world, there's going to be times that you experience rejection. Your Lord experienced it you will experience too. In the West, it may not be that severe. It may just take the form of snide comments or mocking or isolation in some way. Are you standing for Jesus Christ in your family? Maybe you're the only Christian in your extended family. Are you willing to bear that rejection to some degree? Or in your job or in your school, are you willing to count the cost of trusting Jesus Christ When everyone around you is clinging to this world and living according to the standards of this world and you're marching to a different drumbeat, are you willing to make that sacrifice? Remember 
that Jesus Christ was despised by those who knew him best. And so unbelief shouldn't surprise us. Rejection shouldn't surprise us. But we know that the other side of the coin is God promises to work through those who trust in him. Yes, we can have pocket change and we can take a sandwich along with us. And the work of the gospel goes forward through weak human beings like you and me in your jobs, in your schools, neighborhoods, families. Yes, there will be rejection, but also the Lord Jesus Christ is calling a people to himself out of this sin-cursed world. He came to die and rise, to live a a perfect life, to live under the law for us. He was sent by the Father. He willingly came, and so he sends you and he sends me, and he tells us that he is with us even to the end of the age. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the great consolation it is that it ought not to surprise us that if they treated the master as they did, so will they treat the servant. The servant is not greater than the master. O Lord, give us faithfulness. We are weak. We need your strength. Give us greater faith. We often are willing to believe the accounts and the stories of the great things that you're doing in other lives, but we don't believe you're going to do it in our lives. Help us to trust in you in our very ordinary lives for you to be at work through us. And help us be intentional in praying, in praying for those who might reject us now because we know that at least Jesus' brother James was part of this crowd that rejected him at one time and then he became a mighty believer under your hand. So, O Lord, let it be with the ones that we're praying for, family members, loved ones, friends. May you work to your glory. Our hope is in you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.